Greetings, Internet. It is PillPod74 going out over those 5G airwaves. Don't touch that dial because it is a banger. Post post humanism. And if you know there is anything that makes me feel post human, it is recording before noon. Thank you, Victor, for uh, confusing the time zone. <laughs> <laughs> Our, our guest was at one time in Toronto, but he's since uh, fled to the vast Canadian wilderness. The most sought after Canadian destination, Winnipeg, Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today's episode is marked by the absence of Matt, or you might say the yawning chasm of Matt's absence. Um, but Matt needed a break because he spent this week on the very front lines of Praxis, which of course for he, as well as the rest of us, is arguing on Twitter with uh, <laughs> esteemed conservative intellectual James Lindsay, the author of Race Marxism. So Matt reviewed his book. If you, if you heard the last exclusive episode, Matt reviewed his book. Um, and you know... He loved it. Well, <laughs> let, let's call a snowflake a snowflake. He got mad triggered. Yeah, even changed his Twitter handle. Oh, you mean, uh, yeah, James Lindsay. Pissing off Jacobins. Well, he did the thing, the thing that they usually do, which is, I'm not triggered, you're triggered. Oh, yeah. That was great. Yeah. Um, I think Jen, James Lindsay's trying to make a name for himself because after this podcast so thoroughly dismantled Jordan Peterson and put him to bed, <laughs> Lindsay saw his opportunity to ascend the throne of uh, you know, right-wing internet intellectualism. But with the very puzzling claim that Hegel is responsible for critical race theory. And to be honest, I have no idea who the audience is for this. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty weird. Because I understand the appeal of like self-help Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell being, of course, the uh, original writer of Star Wars. <laughs> but I understand why an alienated, internet-brained 20-year-old who gets his philosophy from YouTube would enjoy hearing about how he's the center of the story of the entire universe. But it really is a new bent for the right wing to go, oh yes, Hegel, that great leftist intellectual bent on the destruction of civil society. Yeah, you I know, think I James Lindsay positioned himself pretty strongly in that so-called square hoax anyway, with uh, sending all those fake articles to a bunch of journals and, and then having this big, uh, you know, gotcha moment against the humanities. Yeah, I really, you know, I, I wasn't following it too closely. I saw that I saw the tweets back and forth between Matt McManus and James Lindsay and was some was just generally like delighted that uh it was like that he res responded to it and felt the need to respond to it. But um, yeah, I mean, that whole Hegel thing is pretty interesting. I think it seems like there's a there's a very um, it's like ha having, I think, conservative sort of like misunderstanding philosophy or accusing philosophy of all kinds of ills. Maybe that's not a new phenomenon, but I feel like it's having its new moment right now. <laughs> no, I love the idea that, uh, you know, Hegel supposedly created a critical race theory. Sorry, I'm just holding up my big copy of the logic, which I dutifully carry around with me everywhere I go. Um, yeah, no, I'm all in for that. <laughs> Hegel as the origin of uh, critical race theory and cultural Marxism. Although people who have read Hegel's uh, you know, philosophy of world history might uh, disagree, but that's maybe a longer conversation. <laughs> yeah, he's long. Yes. He's been considered a racist long 
long before being considered the uh, founder of critical race theory. Pretty. Indeed. But anyways, uh, so we, we do, digress. Yeah, we digress. Matt <laughs> is recovering from his time on the front lines. Um, of course, leaving an irreducible lack in the ontological structure of the podcast. But do not fear. There is a symptom. And today the symptom is Matt. A new Matt. Beat. Joining us. Matthew, Matthew Flissfeder, our guest. How are you, how are you doing, Matt? You've heard, it, you've heard his voice for one sentence thus far, but how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to talking. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Matt, before we turn yourself over to you, <laughs> damn, damn, we are getting Lacanian already. Before you should never we turn... do self-analysis, though. No self-analysis. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. True. Good advice. Before we turn yourself over to you, Eric is going to uh, fill the audience in on what they are to expect, or or rather what they desire, if we're going to be on theme here, um, and then we'll proceed from there. Right. So uh, today we have, uh, as we've been saying, a guest with us, Matthew Flissfeder. Professor Matthew Flissfeder is an associate professor of rhetoric and communication at the University of Winnipeg, where he teaches communication theory, critical theory, discourse, ideology. He has a range of interests, and um, he's uh, written a number of books. Um, three of them are single-authored books, and one of them is a uh, collection um, on GJEC and media studies, uh, to which he's also a contributor. Professor Matthew Flissfeder is also um, currently the recipient of a Social Science and Humanities Research Council Insight Grant. Uh, in support of his project, um, which is uh, entitled The Hysterical Sublime, a critical study of the aesthetics, rhetorics, and ethics of new materialist and post-humanist critical theory. Okay, so this is a project uh, Flissfeder is currently working on. And um, my understanding is, of it is that it is a uh, critique of post-humanism um, and in, in a maybe good Hegelian double negation fashion, he's articulating himself as a anti-anti-anthropocentrist. So he's a, he's real, he's a, he's against this um, strain of anti-anthropocentrism that has um, crept into um, contemporary critical theory by way of uh, you could say postmodern philosophy and post-structuralism as it has been sort of ramified and extended into these new movements that we call, you know, new materialism, post-humanism, object-oriented ontology, vitalist materialism, and so on. Think um, Bruno Latour, think Graham Harmon, and even think of the contributions of uh, Deleuze and Guattari in uh, thinkers like Rosie Bradotti. All very great stuff. Yeah, all very interesting. Uh, all very interesting theory uh, that's emerged, um, but not today. But today we're going to be taking a critical look at this strain of um, opposition to human exceptionalism. Uh, the idea that human beings are somehow, let's say, unique or exceptional for various reasons, usually because of their use of language. Um, and that sort of thing. So Matthew Flissfeder is critical of this idea of um, moving away from 
anthropocentrism. So I'll turn it over to uh, Flissfeder now. If if you could just tell us a little bit about the say origin of uh, this project and how it sort of carries forward themes uh, from your earlier work. I should mention the latest book you wrote um, was published last year. Um, it's called uh, Algorithmic Desire uh, Toward a New Structuralist Theory of Social Media. And um, this idea of a new structuralism is is also very interesting. So I, I turn it over to uh, you, Matt, if you could um, maybe maybe open up some of the key issues that you're thinking about right now. Yeah, sure. No, that's a great, uh, great opening question. I'm very happy to be here again. So, um, yeah, you, you you mentioned, so a lot of it is the critique of posthumanism, but there's, I guess what I'm trying to do, there's some continuity in the overall trajectory of the work that I'm doing, largely based in, I'd say I'm more, more of a, a Zizek scholar, Zizek and Frederick Jameson, um, are probably the two biggest influences um, on my work. And via both uh, Zizek and Jameson, rethinking Lacan, rethinking Hegel, really uh, away from the, the, the way that they have been interpreted by a lot of, um, you know, the from the, the 1950s, 1960s going forward in French philosophical circles, thinking of, um, you know, and even the way it's been translated into English critical and cultural theory, Lacan as a post-structuralist um, and even um, as a structuralist thinker, Hegel as a um, panlogicist monist um, thinker. I think that a lot of what I've been trying to do via Zizek and Jameson is to rearticulate the relevance and the significance of the work of uh, Hegel and Lacan, um, but of course, always still with a, a kind of a Marxian politics um, in the background. Excellent, excellent. This sounds uh, more or less like standard fare, and I'm excited to get to the discussion. Oh, by the way, listeners, there's a, a link in the description to the paper that we're discussing in more depth, and it is uh, worth a look either before or after you listen to the conversation. Though just before we get to the theoretical side of your position here, it's worth mentioning, at least to us, as it was a hometown event, uh, that Matt, you were something of an organizer for the infamous Peterson Zizek debate here in Toronto, and I did not attend it, but one of us did. Uh, Victor, you wanted to ask about this, right? So, okay. I mean, so I think we were talking on Twitter a while back and, and you, you know, you mentioned to me that you were actually were the organizer of that Zizek Peterson debate. And I was actually there up in the nosebleeds. Uh, it was quite a scene, you know, it was really interesting to be in line and try to try to identify, okay, who's the Peterson bro? Who's the, who are the Zizek people here? Right? Just look for the three piece suits. Yeah, the different and the <laughs> yeah. different moments of cheering and laughing, right? Uh, like in different sections in the audience. It was, it was look for the sad girlfriends. <laughs> that got dragged here <laughs> i think that would be on both sides let's be honest okay um anyway okay, well not always but so i guess maybe how did that come about um and how was that experience for you um yeah so something i don't actually get to talk about quite often it's really i mean it was such a weird way that it came about so um i've known slavoy for a number of years and i had arranged for him to come and uh give a talk here at the university of winnipeg and it was late December, probably Christmas Eve or before I don't even celebrate Christmas, but it was like Christmas Eve or something. And I get an email from Slavoj. Um, Peterson has challenged him. He says Peterson's challenged him to a debate 
but um, he doesn't know who to contact, what to do about it. Can I, he asked me, can I, can I be the person to arrange it? <laughs> and, you know, I said, oh, shit. Um, you know, and Slavoj's, he's been very kind to me in a number of ways. And I said, okay, well, let me see what I can do. So I wrote, I just, you know, Googled Peterson and found his email address. And I wrote to him and I said, you know, Slavoj's been in touch with me. He wants to do a debate. Can we do this? And I think within a minute, I got a response from hmm. Peterson right away. I'm going to hook you up with my team. Now, one of the things that I think is, you know, it was a very, very interesting experience working with that. And I was the one, I, I negotiated all the details on Slavoj's end, and I had to work with um, Peterson's uh, entire team, his management, his publicist, the, the people organizing. Now, one of the things that actually disturbed me quite a bit that I heard running up to the debate from a lot of people criticizing Slavoj is how can you debate Peterson? How or sorry, how can you how can you platform Peterson? Yeah, how can yeah, you give yeah. Peterson a platform? Which yeah. when I saw that, that was the funniest thing because stop platforming this New York Times number one bestseller. Well, that's it. Right. <laughs> and if you if you understand the entire culture industry apparatus that's behind Peterson, I mean, I sort of kept, you know, I'm gonna keep going forward because Peterson's um, platforming someone who I think is one of the most important philosophers of our time. And he's, you know, giving a, a, an audience to this person that many of these people probably would have never heard of, you know, other than in our little niche circles. I don't think that Savoy is really yet a household name until now, right? So it, it was a very interesting experience um, working uh, and hammering out all those details. I think that there's a lot of people who think they know about the behind the scenes, but don't actually know the behind the scenes, you know, the stuff of the, what with the one that killed me most was that Slavoj's just, you know, cash grab type of thing. People don't know that he donated um, his, uh, what he got from the debate to uh, the Caring Society, which is a Canadian charity that supports Indigenous families and, and children. Right. Mm. So, I mean, you know, and well, you know, to P it's interesting to Peterson's credit. I do actually remember that at the very beginning of the debate, Peterson did actually say that that Slavoj Žižek was giving it to the to a charity. He didn't say what the charity was. And the reason I remember that so clearly was because I was waiting for him to say that he was giving his money to charity. But then he didn't say anything. <laughs> right. That's right. And he didn't. Yeah. Um, so but, you know, I mean. Again, with, on Peterson's side, you can say what you want about Peterson, but uh, you know the way that he prepared or or, or didn't oh, prepare yeah. for the for for the debate. I mean, it was a very very I think a useful not necessarily a debate as many people have pointed out. They agreed on a lot of points, but it was a very useful conversation, at least for me, and seeing some of the responses from Peterson fans on Reddit, on YouTube, and other spaces. The way that they responded to to Zizek. Right. And that, you know, at the very least, you know, Slavoj being kind of like a gateway drug to alternative way of thinking that a lot of people may not have ever encountered before. And I have, you know, lots of my friends locally here, my family back home in Toronto, you know, most of these people have not encountered Zizek's view of Hegel, Marxism, uh, and so forth, and we're much more inclined to support Peterson. And coming away from this saying, wow, I need to learn more about this guy, Slavoj Žižek. I need to read more about this guy, Slavoj Žižek. And I think that that's, to me, not beyond the, the challenging of the postmodern neo-Marxists 
which I thought was great. I think mean, that was mm-hmm. to me, and I think everybody, the the best moment of the entire debate, because I think that, I mean, myself included, I have a lot of, not necessarily the same, but similar critiques of the kinds of theorists that Peterson's poking at, Foucault, Derrida, who I value very much, but I'm very critical of, um, that are not Marxist. And they're, they're avowedly anti-Marxist in their orientation. So that one moment, I think, to me, was central for the debate and forcing people to really think, you know, okay, well, what is Marxism? Um, how do we do it? And the other thing too, I, you know, you see a lot of people who say, oh, I could have done a better debate against Peterson. I could have actually defended Marxism better than Zizek. A lot of people saying this, but the, you know, at the end of the day, Peterson didn't want to talk to any of those people. He wanted to talk to Zizek, right? He wanted to talk to Zizek. He wanted to, and in some sense, there's a part of my book um, on, on social media and algorithmic desire, I talk about the movie Gone Girl, where I see that as actually a very um, radical revolutionary type film because the hero in that film, she knows that the best way to make a change is to perform for the camera, to play a persona, to you know change things by using the level of appearances. And I think that that's something that's central to um, socialist debate, left-wing debate, I don't know what you want to call the, the politics here, but using the level of the performance there as a way to make a change in the real, right? And I think that's something that a lot on a lot of people on the left don't quite really, aren't getting it. Rhetoric matters, appearance matters, right? This is something that I think has to be built into. And it's the same reason why even in the language that I'm using around humanism, as opposed to say socialism or communism, I think that this is something that, you know, through the rhetoric itself will interpolate a a public that is interested in making the kinds of ethical changes that require. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, And the fear of platforming also is a very contemporary social media specific thing to say, as if platforming is a one-way street. And in this case, I think it's obvious, uh, though maybe not to everybody, that Peterson was platforming Zizek at least as much as the other way around. But uh, whether media events are productive or whether the spectacle is worth it is already a problem for feed-brained moralist posters to figure out on their own time. So have at it. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe this algorithmic desire or algorithmic jouissance in action. That, by the way, is the title of one of Matt's uh, other books. But for today, turning now to the current topic, uh, we're looking at an article, your article, a renewal of humanism against post-humanist critiques. So it's big, it's broad. It'll be put into book form. But Matt, um, could you introduce us to the motivation to renew humanism? So the origins of this current project that I'm working on, there's a number of origins, really. Um, Before the book that you mentioned, the last one, Algorithmic Desire, I wrote a little book on um, postmodern theory and the movie Blade Runner. So I spent a number of years rethinking and re-examining um, postmodernism, largely through a Marxist critique of postmodernism that comes out of Frederick Jameson's work. And then when I was working on um, my social media book, one of the things that really struck me in the way that somebody like uh, Bruno Bastilles, who's a reader of uh, uh, Zizek's work, um, he he re- and, and, a, and a student of Badiou, and he referred to 
Zizek and Laclau and Mouffe as trying to develop what he called a, a, a new theory of structural causality. So if you remember, so in the work of Louis Althusser, Althusser's structural Marxism, the idea that class struggle and history, for instance, are this absent cause that we can only read through the structures of their emergence. The idea that the, 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 the cause is developed and understood in its own effect. But there was sort of this closed version of the structure that didn't really leave any room for the agency of the subject apart from being a, a symptom of the structure or an epiphenomenon of the structure. And what Bastilles locates in Laclau and Mouffe and then Zizek is this idea of a, an open structure. So a non-closed, a non-total, a non-complete structure where you can find in the work of Zizek, for instance, and other neo-Lacanian um, philosophers from the Slovenian school, like Miladin Dolar, like Alenka Zupancic, this idea that the subject is what emerges not because of ideology, but the subject is what emerges at the failure of ideology. When ideology fails, when we encounter the limits of the structure, or in Lacanian terms, the symbolic order, when we encounter the limits, or when we experience contradiction, this is not something that we does that we need to overcome in kind of the older, more phenomenological or existentialist. Um, <clears throat> sort of Kojevian humanist idea of trying to escape contradiction, what we start to understand is that the experience of contradiction is only is really where we discover the presence of the subject. So in my little book, my, not my little book, but on my, my last book on uh, social media, what I was trying to do there was trying to think about the form and the structure of social media in terms of this idea of a new structuralism that imagines the, 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 the subject not as an epiphenomenon of the structure, but rather as what emerges when we realize the gaps or the lacks or the contradictions within the structure. But as I was doing this, I was trying to start, to, I was starting to think about um, you know, what is this idea of subject? And what was what were some of the criticisms of the notion of subject found in the Marxist humanist work, again, in phenomenology and existentialism, that we really see the criticism of uh, with the development of Levi-Strauss's structuralism that we see in Althusser's structural Marxism. And of course, later on in the post-structuralisms of Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze and Guattari, and so forth. So I kind of had in mind this idea of trying to think about, is it possible to redevelop, to redeploy through uh, Zizek, um, mainly Zizek's reading of Hegel, is it possible to rethink this idea of not just a human subject, but also a humanist politics and a humanist ethics? Now, I'll say that this it's kind of an odd project for me because Zizek is very much an avowed anti-humanist. Frederick Jameson, too, is a very much an avowed anti-humanist. And I know that some people like to peg them as humanist uh, thinkers, and that's part of the, probably a longer conversation. And I've been in dialogue with Zizek about the way to, to think his um, humanism. So the difficulty is, um, you know, really trying to elaborate on this idea of what it means to, to rethink the notion of humanism through the work of a validly uh, anti-humanist uh, thinkers. Now, I'll just say quickly, the other sort of influence uh, on this current project is when I was working on the postmodernism book, especially in the work of Frederick Jameson, he had this little idea that doesn't really explore anywhere else, um, but he writes about this idea of hysterical sublime. 
He talked about this kind of hysterical sublime in his postmodernism work. And the best he can come up with there is he talks about the role of the sublime in the aesthetic philosophy of Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant, and where to be somewhat reductive here, talking about the sublime as the way in which the human subject experiences or grasps nature, and in that grasping of the nature, the irrational nature outside of humanity, that we come to gain a sense of our own humanity and in, other, in, in some sense, put ourselves into the picture of radical and critical thinking. Even if you see this in Kant, that the in the critique of judgment, that the way to begin to think dialectically and rationally is by initially positing the presupposition of an externality of nature out there against which we think and reason. Now, what Jameson does is he argues that the sublime of postmodern culture is not nature, but technology. And in, um, in, in trying to think against the, 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 the emergence of new media, new technology, um, computer technology that we see sort of um, depicted in movies like 2001 Space Odyssey, The Terminator, The Matrix, um, um, and even um, today TV shows like Black Mirror, that we sort of posit the sublime other of our society as a uh, technology that we should be fearful of. Now, the last thing I'll say is that what I'm trying to do then is to take this idea of the emergence of a technology that we should be fearful from and to combine that with the way that a lot of the Anthropocene discourse is arguing that too much of a human footprint um, in the way that we've developed technology is causing our climatological conundrum. So that the fear of technology in some ways comes to stand in as a fear of the human as such. And that's why we have these ideas, you know, anthropocentrism, anthropocene. But there are other writers like uh, 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 James W. Moore, uh, uh, for instance, uh, sorry, Jason W. Moore, uh, for instance, this idea of the capitalocene, that the problem is not so much the human footprint, but it's the systems and the structures are the mode of production that is um, not inherent to humanity, but it's something built, constructed, that we can, in fact, change and transform. And I like this idea of thinking about structures that we can change and transform, which requires some kind of human ethical action um, taking place. So it's in those terms that I'm trying to rethink the idea of humanism and anthropocentrism. And I hope that makes sense. I know I said a lot there. No, that's a, that's a great intro great intro summary to the project um just so we can get everybody up to speed i was wondering if we could define a, a couple terms because we hear transhumanism being thrown around we hear you saying humanism and post-humanism and return to humanism and specifically that zizek is an anti-humanist so i wondered if you could uh rather quickly i know this this is this is a book topic but kind of define where you see the bleeds and the boundaries between those different terms, prefixes plus human. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that. It's a, it's a great question. And I think that these are terms um, that, you know, are still kind of in, in, in translation because I don't think that, it, you know, any two people are going to agree on what these terms mean. And I think that a lot of the pushback that I get is when I try to say post-humanism is this or post-humanism is that. Um, so I'm gonna tell you how I interpret these terms. And I know that there are many who might disagree 
um, with me here. So I'll begin then with the way I understand an older Marxist humanism, which is absolutely not the kind of humanism that I'm trying to develop here. And in fact, I'm trying to move away from what I'm interpreting as an older Marxist humanism, which if you look at the work of somebody like Eric Fromm, or even some of the early work of Henri Lefebvre, they're arguing for some kind of substantial, essential connection between humanity and nature. And they're drawing largely on Marx's early, later published um, uh, 1843, 1844 economic and philosophical manuscripts, this idea of humanity as existing in coordination with nature as a species being that at some point gets alienated from nature, and that the project of the Marxist humanisms of people like Fromm and uh, Lefebvre is this sort of recombination of humanity with some substantial nature. So if the problem is a contingent alienation, then their politics, the Marxist humanist politics, is one of a disalienation to recombine humanity with some kind of substantial nature, which is interesting for me because I think that there's a lot of similarities with the project of post-humanism. So uh, I'll get back to that in one second because uh, I first want to say something about anti-humanism. So it varies because in the work of Louis Althusser, the idea here, and there's a number of sources for Althusser's anti-humanism. One is his argument that Stalinism was in some ways too humanist in being uh, somewhat teleologically driven, um, historicist, economist, and more or less this idea that you could plan and organize uh, the economy, ignoring the class struggle as the motor of history. So for Althusser, in some ways, um, Stalinism was too humanist. Now, the other side of that was after um, the death of Stalin, um, the Soviet Union started to avow this new policy of humanism, of peaceful coexistence between the, the you know, East and West. And a lot of the French Communist Party, the main philosophers of the French Communist Party were, they were a Stalinist party. So they adopted the Stalinist party line of adopting official humanism. So Althusser's anti-humanism was sort of in reaction to that official humanism of the, of the Soviet Union, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the, communist, uh, the French Communist um, Party. But the other argument that Althusser was making was that there's a distinct break in Marx's work from his early period to his later period. His early period, which was much more ideologically humanist, and then his later period, which was much more scientifically objective in the objective analysis, as opposed to the subjective analysis or the moralistic analysis uh, of capital. So Althusser's anti-humanism is really one of trying to emphasize some kind of scientific objective analysis of, of capitalism, of history, really. So seeing history uh, class struggle as the motor of history and not the the subjective aspect of the you know people making conditions um, uh, out of situations that are not their own. Now the other an way anti-humanism is built into Althusser and in some ways Lacan is drawing on Claude Lévi-Strauss uh, in his structural anthropology and in uh, his book The Savage Mind very famously in a kind of a retort to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the humanism of Jean-Paul Sartre, um, Levi-Strauss makes this claim that the goal of the sciences is not to constitute humanity, but to dissolve it. So there's this sense that the goal is to try to 
move away from this notion of subject. I should say too that the the, the humanism of Sartre, um, phenomenological, existential, in some ways drawing on Heidegger, in some ways moving away from Heidegger, is simply this idea that our existence precedes our essence, that our material materiality, our 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 being in the world precedes, comes before our search for some kind of essence, which in a way it, it, it speaks to the secular dimensions of a humanism where there is nobody that can hold us to account other than ourselves, right? That we are the legislators of our ethics, of our morality, that no you know, divine being, no being outside of us can hold us to account other than ourselves. So Levi Strauss is sort of responding in some ways to subhumanism in that way. Then the 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 anti-humanism of the post-structuralists, like Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze and Guattari, for instance, in some ways I see them as very much Kantian. If we think about Kant's project as one of where we are able only to know our knowledge of things, but we cannot know things in themselves. So they're the things outside of our knowledge, our discourses, our representations. And for the post-structuralist anti-humanists, I think that that still carries because what they emphasize, Foucault, for instance, emphasizes that we cannot know truth outside of discourse or that truth is but an effective discourse. So all we can know are our representations of truth, but we cannot know truth itself. For Derrida, you know, again, drawing somewhat on, on a, a Heideggerian destruction of metaphysics of presence, this idea that, um, that every imposition of a structure, it creates a center of knowledge, right? And that center of knowledge imposes some form of power. So there's this operation of decentering the subject, of decentering the human, right? So all, these are the various different types of uh, anti-humanism, right? Now, Post-humanism, I think, is different from anti-humanism in the sense that whereas anti-humanism emphasizes our ability only to know our knowledge of things, but not things in themselves, post-humanism wants to argue that we can get directly at this knowledge of things in themselves. You know, think of it as thing philosophy. We can know the reality, the objective reality of the world in some way. And that what moves us away from it or mystifies it is too much human centrism, right? Too much human centrism. So this is where I think post-humanism is different in, in this way from anti-humanism, right? Does that kind of, do these things sort of make sense? It, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're hanging together for me. Um, my, my understanding as well, just to sort of editorialize is that, um, Humanism is also associated not just with Marxist humanism, but with liberal humanism as well, which in a certain way accompanies the rise of capitalism post um, post industrial revolution. Humanism was offered almost as a um, as a kind of justification for the human beings, you know, this this quest to dominate nature, this quest to produce new technologies, make our lives easier, more convenient, and to Can and I just to, interject? I just want to interject there. Because I mean sure. I think that you're making you're making a very good point. And I think that it's very important to distinguish between uh, a liberal conception of humanism, a Marxist conception of humanism, and then the kind of humanism that I'm trying to renew uh, in my own work. And I think that the, the uh, an important distinction to make between, let's say, the liberal project and the Marxist project, first of all, I think that we have to recognize that there is 
a kind of benefit in some way to the historical development of liberalism in the sense that it, for the first time, acknowledges this idea of formal freedom, right? That you have to have the formal idea, the concept of freedom before we can develop it into actual freedom. Now, where I think what's important here, for me at least, is the coincidence of liberal political philosophy and the emergence of the capitalist mode of production. In the sense that if we think about, you know, when, when we look at Marx's um, Capital Volume 1, I kind of like to read Marx's Capital Volume 1, and I, I'm drawing here some way both Rea Danayevskaya and Louis Althusser, Danayevskaya, who is kind of like a theoretical opponent to Althusser, both agree that Marxism is not a political economy, but a critique of political economy. And if we think of capital as critique of political economy, I think it's useful to actually think of it not just as a, an analysis of political economy, but as analysis of bourgeois ideology, which in some way, it, it begins with this idea of the individual struggling against nature. Right, that the that the individual determines its existence, whereas what Marx is trying to do is to show the the not the individual, but the socially determined individual. In the same way, you kind of see this in Hegel's philosophy of right when he's talking about the market logic of competition, that even though individuals enter into competition with each other, we still all rely on each other for the mutual production of our means of subsistence. Now, in liberal humanism, I think that the key idea is that the human is a property owner, is somebody who owns property, right? That you are human, that you are human in the eyes of law, as opposed to, let's say, you know, in slavery, where you're not an owner of property, you're not even just without property, you are yourself property, right? Mm -hmm. That it's dehumanizing in that way in the context of uh, liberal humanism and liberal capitalism. So that for capitalism and liberalism, the human is a property owner, even the wage laborer is considered human because we supposedly own our labor power as commodity that we can sell on the market. So the wage form in some way still is a way of instilling this idea of the, the commodity that we own that gives us our humanity in the liberal humanist sense. Now, the difference between that and the Marxist sense is I think that Marxist humanism is still trying to actualize the merely formal freedom that is proposed by liberal humanism. And, and, these, um, and these philosophies also connect up to a kind of periodizing scheme that we're talking about as well between modernism and postmodernism. And I guess maybe the best way to approach this would be to talk about your concept of subjectivity, um, which, which you get through Lacan and the idea that we locate subjectivity in a kind of, um, in a kind of, let's say a gap or a break that opens up in the symbolic and that gap in the symbolic is filled in or covered over by a kind of fantasy. I'm probably going to get this wrong, a fantasy, right? And we know Althusser's description of ideology is that a, um, is that ideology is, is the way we imagine our, our own relationship to our material conditions of our being. And that you take this idea though, and you, and you run with it. Maybe you can help me out here and expand on this. Where do you locate subjectivity and how does it relate to your project? Sure, that's a really good question. And I guess I would say that I draw largely from Zizek. And again, I draw largely from um, Zizek's Hegelian interpreta interpretation of Lacan. And I draw on his, um, uh, his Lacanian interpretation of Hegel and his Hegelian interpretation of Lacan here. So there's a number of ways that we can think about this. First of all, 
you know, going to Althusser, uh, I said it before, but I'll repeat it. And I'm drawing off of something that um, Zizek's colleague in the Slovenian um, school, he says that for Althusser, um, subjectivity is a function of ideology. That subject is uh, what uh, emerges through the structure of ideology. Um, ideology interpolates individuals as subjects. But for Delar, he says that for Lacan, um, subject is, is what emerges when ideology fails. Now, I want to kind of come at this actually from the opposite end, from the uh, starting point of subjectivity. So we, uh, I, I began here by talking about subject as emerging at the failure of ideology or as a limit or the point of contradiction within the symbolic or the structure. But I think that we can also look at it, and th this might be a longer explanation, but we can also look at it from the point that- Can, of, I, can uh, I interrupt you just a sec? Sorry, sorry yeah, before, before we go. Sorry, sorry, yeah, we were just going through a complex line of reasoning over several centuries, and I just wanted to editorialize on behalf, on behalf of the listener. So we have humanisms, as you discussed, Marxist, liberal, uh, Stalinist, you mentioned particularly in the French communist context, um, and then the not humanists or anti-humanists, if, if you prefer. So we're around 1950, 1960 here, and not yet at the post-human turn, but I wonder if you could clarify for the listener uh, what or who the subject is at this time, because for a long time, and this is the defining feature, or a defining feature of humanisms, is that subjects and humans are interchangeable, more or less. Humans are subjects, and subjects are humans. Um, so what is the context of the split or the division that takes place with the linguistic turn, uh, with the development of psychoanalysis? And how is it that the subject now comes to be considered separately from the human being? Okay, so I should say the difference between um, uh, human and subject. So we're talking about human. We're just talking about our our biological existence, our species existence, the fact that we are, you know, of nature. We are in, you know, we are natural bodies. Whereas subject here, in some ways, combines two operations. It, uh, it uh, combines the operation of our conscious self, our self-awareness, but also our unconscious self, which is tied to things like our desire, fantasy, and enjoyment, um, and so on. So I think that we can we can look at the difference between just, you know, a human being and a human subject. If we think about the origin point of subjectivity um, in the Lacanian and Hegelian sense. Now, one way to do that is to think about how we are all born into the world and the, that precedes us, right? We are born into a world of um, a, a society with values, with norms, um, and we don't become subject, you know, automatically by being born into the world. But at a certain point, what here I'm drawing on Lacanian theory. At a certain point, we start to think of a sense of self independently of our parents. Let's say. Right. And we realize that we we want to we don't even have like a sense of who we are uh, outside of the mother or the father who satisfy all our needs. And this is in Lacan's idea of the mirror stage as the formation of the ego, where you see yourself reflected in the in the in the in the mirror and you start to realize yourself outside of yourself and you start to develop this ideal sense of yourself as a wholeness. 
right? But at the same time, you also want to satisfy the desire of your parents, right? That my parents say I'm this, they, my parents say I'm this, they, you know, they want me, you know, to the, to look like this or to act like this. I, I they, my parents gender me and so on and so forth. They give me a name. And at a certain point we have to make a decision, right? We have to, it, what Zizek refers to as a forced choice, right? A forced choice of being. Now, another way to think about this forced choice of being is Zizek draws on Lacan's interpretation of the Cartesian cogito, the I, I think, therefore I am. And in one point of Lacan's seminar, in seminar 11, Lacan argues we should divide I think and I am, thinking and being. We should divide the two. And in seminar 11, Lacan argues that the subject is condemned to choose thinking over being. But later on in his seminar 14, Lacan argues that we still split it, I think and I am, but we are condemned to being and thinking is relegated to the position of the unconscious. Now, what I take here is this idea that when we choose being, every act of choice combines an affirmation and a negation. Every time you choose something, you're negating all of the other possibilities that exist out there. So we choose an initial identity that limits us, that limits us, and we're trying to satisfy the desires of others out there. But while we limit ourselves in choosing this identity, we're also at the same time negating all of those other things that become lost. They become the, the, the Lacanian lost object, the fantasy object of all those things that I think I can get that will complete, complete me, but I think, oh, I can't get that because it's being limited or prohibited by uh, um, some other entity, right? My parents, society, and so on. And the whole process of fantasy is this idea of pursuing these lost objects that we think will, when we get them, they will complete us. And if we complete ourselves, then we'll have full, absolute enjoyment. And that's one way to think about the relation of desire to subjectivity. But then the other thing that Lacan and Zizek say is that in the failure to gain the thing that we think we've lost, we're actually still getting enjoyment, what's called drive that we're still getting enjoyment. Because what we're enjoying, although we don't realize it, is this unconscious satisfaction of reaffirming the initial choice that we made to limit ourselves. So subject emerges in this kind of paradoxical contradictory relationship of I've chosen the thing that I'm going to be, but I don't realize that I've made this free choice, you know, to be this what I'm gonna be and everybody's prohibiting me from being this other thing that I'm going to be. And the end of analysis, the reemergence of subjectivity, is this moment of realization that I have always had this freedom to be able to choose and limit myself, right? That I can, it's not just this, you know, stupid distinction between, you know, freedom from and freedom to, that there's all, they always happen in coincidence, in coincidence with each other, that I impose my own limits and I follow the own structure, my own structure of laws that I give to myself. And that's how I enact my freedom as a subject. You know, or another way to think about it even is, you know, if we're a human being is what we are, but subject is tied to a freedom that allows us to negate the conditions of what we are right? Freedom is being able to say, no, I won't be this. I won't do that. Whether, you know, we may be determined by the, by the base, the superstructure might be determined by the base, but in the superstructure, we can negate 
the conditions in the base themselves, right? I might be born, you know, you know, this, you know, religion or this sex, but I can, in my freedom, negate the conditions of which I am given. And that's how I enact my freedom. And that's where subject emerges here in the way that I'm using it. Right. Um. So I, <clears throat> I'd like to ask. Does that, does that clarify or? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I man. think it does. Well, we're on track here now having rhetorically performed a kind of humanism or versions of humanisms and performed a bit of the impetus for a non or anti-humanism. But we're here today together to try to renew a humanism against what you've called, Matt, a performative contradiction in post-humanism. So barring any objections, why don't we try to get a feel for that debate, uh, which is far more contemporary than what we've been discussing so far. Um, so, I, so I'm curious about sort of like kind of bringing it to the, to the paper um, that we all read, which will be in the description, I believe. Is it true that it's just like publicly available, I think, that you know, it's not behind a paywall or is that just, am I imagining that? I think at the moment on Project News, it's available, but also the journal itself has its own website and it'll be free forever. On the journal's okay. website for public for uh, postmodern culture. Okay, awesome, awesome. So yeah, so our listeners can uh, can take a look at it. I mean, I found it to be a very provocative, uh, interesting paper, and and of course, I come at things from a perspective where you know I'm not as ensconced in these debates uh, about like structuralism and postmodernism. I'm a political theorist, you know, but but I, I engage it because a lot of my work ends up engaging people like Lacalau Mouf and some of these radical Democrats. So like I kind of know it through that, but but I don't, I'm not. I'm not taking it hat on, but I did do uh, an MA at York in, uh, well, I guess it would have been an MES technically um, in environmental studies. And, you know, I was in an environmental studies department, so I found it very satisfying in a way and interesting to read a paper that was kind of a a take, not a, quite a takedown, but like somewhat of a challenge to the ubiquity of this term Anthropocene, right? That obviously in an environmental studies department, this is like a very dominant term that everyone uses all the time, right? They talk about how we're in the Anthropocene. So I think like maybe to sort of summarize uh, the argument as I took it in, in your paper, and you can kind of tell me where I go wrong, but just or if I go wrong, but but just to sort of like, I guess, sort of simplify. And I think it comes up, um, I mean, I took a bunch of quotes from your paper. And I think what was sort of uh, or I guess one thing that I want to get clear about in the argument rather of the paper is there's one sense in which you're sort of saying that this kind of anthropocentrism um, is, I guess, like it, you're critiquing. So, oh, sorry, people adopt the perspective of being anti-anthropocentrism for almost like political reasons or ethical reasons that like we want to not be so self-centered. Right. And I think one of the things your paper, to put it really simply, does is to say that like you know, being like centering the human philosophically doesn't actually mean that you are ethically or morally kind of like self-centered from the human perspective, right? That like, so there's a point sort of that I think people who want to resist anthropocentrism, they want to say, well, because it risks that we're going to be self-centered, right? And all we care about is ourselves as human and we don't care about the non-human world and the environment, right? That's sort of, I think, what motivates the adoption of those terms, right? But then I think what your paper does is you make sort of a philosophical argument to say, well, that like doesn't really make sense because we can't help but in a way look at things from from a human perspective. So I guess is that like, I guess, how do you see the relationship between sort of like that moral concern or that like like political concern about like being like kind of humanistically egoist and then like the philosophical question about just like ontologically or like. 
uh, at the level of subjectivity, at the level of like philosophy, well, there is, you know, just a subject there um, that happens to be a human perspective. And I think you, you do something interesting when you're engaging with Harmon's work where you say, you know, who is he trying to convince, right, with his object-oriented ontology? Like, there is something that he is making an argument for. How could that not be the human, right? Because, uh, you know, for those, we haven't actually covered uh, Harmon on the podcast or really many of the, I guess they call them speculative realists. Um, so anyway, I don't know. There's a lot there, but maybe you could respond to some of it. Yeah, no, that's a great summary. And you're getting at the heart of what I find really problematic with this idea of the critique of anthropocentrism is I'm really wondering about the ethical dimensions of post-humanism and the Anthropocene narrative. So even drawing on somebody like uh, Graham Harmon, and I'm being somewhat reductive here for the sake of brevity, but he talked all the time about objects withdrawing from each other, withdrawing, right? That there's this autopoietic development of each individual object that can sometimes, you know, combine in their sensuousness. But at the end of the day, we are still, still withdrawn um, it, it kind of a spurious infinity that we, you know, withdrawing, withdrawing and separating and separating and separating and separating. And I, I think of this sort of tongue in cheek, you know, the, that there's an ethical withdrawal um, in this perspective that is constantly seeking to decenter the human subject. Because, yes, there's this concern that, you know, too much human centrism is a way of destroying nature. And it oddly pits nature and humanity against each other in a way that I find to be far too idealistic. Because, I mean, even in my sense of humanism, I don't think that we can just, you know, try to, it's not just about dominating and destroying nature. Because by doing that, we're not being humanist at all, because we're undermining the very substance that we rely on for our, our, our living. Now, the other part of this, too, and here I, I kind of like Althusser has a great essay on Marx and Freud, and where I'm critical of Althusser in some ways, I love his work um, in other ways. And he's talking about the, the significance of Marx and Freud, apart from, you know, a lot of the Frankfurt School attempts to combine into like a Freudo-Marxism. What Althusser shows is that what, what's significant about both Freud and Marx is that they, they critique the bourgeois subject of the self aware, fully centered, fully conscious subject in different ways. Marx, on the one hand, critiquing the bourgeois subject of individualistic needs by showing that it's not the individual who determines his or her own um, existence, but that we are in some ways all already determined by the our, our, our position within the class struggle. That class struggle is the motor of history, not the individual subject. In the same way, Freud shows that every conscious subject is always already decentered by the existence of the unconscious, that our motivations are not always fully self-aware, self-present to us, but that our motivations are we're not even sometimes aware, you know, and that's why we repeat, you know, stupid failed attempts to get something we think we want, but we repeat painful and harmful experiences. So part of my argument is that subjects um, are always already decentered. That's one thing. The other thing against the, the, the Marxist humanist notions of alienation, I think that, the, and again, it comes from this, you know, sort of, you know, end of history sort of totality idea that we can somehow, you know, fully recombine with nature and that alienation is contingent. Part of my argument is that alienation is constitutive of what we, you know, we are as subjects. That's we, we, by being alienated, that's what forces us to think and to negate and to enact our freedom. And that's how I think we can grasp this, uh, this sense of an ethics that is not meant to disalienate, 
or to decenter, but actually trying to center that every time we make an ethical act, every time we act in some way, we are centering our ability to make a change, to make a transformation. Another way to think of it too, then, you know, the, my criticism of, um, you know, the anti-anthropocentrism stuff is if you look at the work of somebody like Stephen Shaviro or even Jane Bennett, who both in different ways argue for a kind of a panpsychism, the idea that not only are, you know, human subjects capable of thinking and reasoning, but we should also assume that non-human animals and objects are also capable of thinking and reasoning. And there's a huge anthropomorphism. They argue avowedly for a strategic anthropomorphism. And I think to myself, well, hang on, if you're anthropomorphizing the non-human and objects, you're already inherently centering human qualities, right? Human aspects that you're assigning to the other. So there's not really any kind of um, anti-anthropocentrism here. You're still centering and valuing, making value judgment about human qualities, right? Now, I get the, the overall project here is to try to think, you know, some kind of equity between human and the non-human. And I think that's great. But as somebody like Kate Soper um, has put it, that only human subjects can extend moral consideration to non-human subjects, right? That there's a, 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 a uh, in the way that I put it, you know, you know, who are you trying to convince if not other human subjects? So ultimately, you know, my humanism here is not about trying to, you know, resubstantialize humanity to get to grasp that we are all, you know, constitutively alienated, which is why I even say in some ways that the 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 ideal here for me is not you know mutual recognition with all of other people, mm -hmm. but we invest ourselves into a specific other that we hold as our limit, right? You know, say, you know, your, your partner in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, a marriage relationship or, or, you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend or, or whatever. Right. But if you have that kind of, you know, you, you choose who you want to be with and that's your, your limit. Right. In the same way that Hegel talks about love, that love is a contradictory, but necessary relationship in that in my other, I see the alienation in myself right. and it holds me to account. Right. Yeah, yeah. So all of all of this is various different processes of centering the subject to act. I think that's the only way we can think ethically. Yeah, can I, and actually, uh, just to kind of pick up on that, I think one way I also sort of understood your argument as like obviously not being tr not trying to mount a defense of like human centrism in kind of the way that that those uh, people who um, are anti anthropocentrism think, but rather to just be like this risk that you think is entailed by like acknowledging this the the centeredness of, of of the human aren't actually like necessary risks or the risks aren't there if you take it up in the right way if you understand at least the way that you uh explain humanism um but i, w I wondered you know the, the, the a sort of follow-up to that is you know in some of my own work um I kind of observed a symmetry with some of the observations you're making about the anti-anthropocentric crowd and um in, in some of the political theory that I engage with, they kind of call it like post-foundationalism sort of, um, you know, the radical Democrats. And I sometimes think, um, or I've, I've, I accuse them sort of of being crypto-normativists in a way, because like they, they, they kind of pretend, you know, that they don't need to appeal to anything um, 
to any sort of like foundation or any sort of like ethical claim. In some ways, they want to avoid making normative claims altogether, right? They just want to talk about the disruption in the political order and like the political moment. They don't want to like have to appeal to any sort of uh, like explicit normative claims. And I mean, maybe this doesn't map on perfectly, but the one I thought ask I had you, sort of Victor, where are these crypto normativists? <laughs> name, one. name one. Name <laughs> one. That's Gx. Please name one. Yeah. Well, uh, exactly. I yeah. think. I think. I think. I think. Uh, Laclau. I think Rancière is a crypto normativist. I think Foucault is a crypto normativist. No, I, I mean, think. who's an anti-normativist in the way that you're describing? Because you have probably two of them in this in this Zoom call right now. What do you mean? Who are the who are the anti-normativists? Yeah. Well, they're crypto normativists, so they they, yeah, they think that there's a the risk. Cloud. I guess the I guess the symmetry I was trying to get to is I feel like there's a perception of a risk that when you make normative claims, you're somehow going to fall victim to like some reductive thinking. Well, what I mean to say is to critique foundations or to critique universalisms is not to say that no norms exist. I just want to jump in here, okay? So Reza Negarostani has a really, really great point that I like, you know, that speaks to this, is that there is no way to articulate anything that is anti-normative, right? That every critique right. of a norm is at the same time the articulation of a new one, the position from which you're making, you know, your critique of the normative claim. So when you say crypto normative, I think that, and this is part of what, what I want to do as well, is that I think that there is in a lot of post-humanism, as I've tried to describe it, an inherent or an implicit humanist ethics that is being disavowed, right? That it's not, and this, I mean, it, it, it's kind of the, the problem that I have even with, you know, uh, you know, a Foucauldian anti-foundationalism or anti-normativism. Uh, you know, you see this in Foucault's um, uh, essay, What is Enlightenment?, where he's arguing in favor of the Enlightenment ethic for constant critique, but against the normative value judgments of humanism, that there's this kind of inherent politics of endless negation you know, negate, 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 which kind of puts you in this sort of, you know, elitist, you know, chair that you can always look down in, you know, in the safe position of the critic. I can, Pills, give me a second. I, I can see you want to jump in there. But um, <laughs> this, you know, constantly, but if every time, if your only action is to negate, 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 you're always at the same time propping up something else as being in power. So at a certain point, you have to, you know, you can't just negate, you have to affirm what you stand for. What is, what is it that you would like to impose to create a much more ethical or equitable uh, form of society. But just to is that is that is that like Latour's art? We we when we first started the podcast, sorry to interrupt you, but like the very first episode or one of the very first episodes we did was on that Latour article. Has critique run its course or something like that? And that why is critique similar. run out of steam? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I don't. Uh, I mean, the problem that I have with the you know, I, I mean, critique, criticism, I mean, all of these things you know have you know there's. Uh, uh, it, you know, the, the the way to understand them is very different. And I kind of take Latour's, you know, is critique out of steam sort of in the same vein that I take Susan Sontag's against interpretation or even Deleuze and Guattari's mm -hmm. anti-interpretivism, because I think that there is still, I have, a, I have difficulty with the ethics of a criticism that is pure absolute negation, but I still think that interpretation and narrative construction, in the way that Frederick Jameson talks about when he says that narrative is a socially symbolic act, I still think that this type of critique is essential 
and important if we are going to think about ways to enact a kind of an ethics, right? So I don't right. think critique right. has run out of steam in that sense. But I did want to speak you know, again to this idea of anti-foundationalism. And it reminds me of the way that somebody like Derrida, you know, in Yapada of text, there's no outside language, there's no meta language, right? And I think that the Lacanian and Hegelian perspective doesn't necessarily disagree with that, but defends the idea that the only way to arrive at any conception of truth is by beginning by positing some kind of foundational idea against which all of our reasoning proceeds so that we can posit you know this you know posit this idea and try to think about it logically rationally and come to the end point where we realize you know where does the contradiction enter and it's only by doing this that we can come to truth, not by getting rid of foundations or deconstructing foundations or getting rid of you know, positive ideas, but to actually think through reasonably the ideas that we're positing to determine whether or not they are true or false. So I don't, I, I, I don't believe that there is any kind of actual anti-foundationalism. I think that every form of critique is inherently founding uh, some kind of normative value judgment against which it's allowing itself to reason all various different possibilities. And the, you know, the question is, uh, I, I guess I'm an odd kind of materialist because, or I, I don't try to think in the, you know, a Heideggerian sense of what is, you know, what is ontologically true in, in being, but I like to begin actually, you know, what is our ontology proposing for us ethically? Right? What is the what are the ethics implied? And I start to think of all ontology as in one way or another, um, a kind of a legitimization or a justification of various different forms of ethical commitments. Yeah, I really like that Negristani uh, quote, by the way, I actually, I, I, I copied it because I'd never read it, that thing. I think you mentioned it earlier about, uh, yeah, uh, you, we cannot critique norms without at the same time producing them or whatever. And I thought I really, I really appreciated that. In some ways, you know, reading your article, again, uh, sort of, reiterating that I'm not that ensconced in this literature, but I have, you know, I really like Lacan. Uh, I've spent a lot of time reading Lacan and I even published something like about Lacan and, uh, and sustainability, but, but it's not like my main area. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me to read your paper because it was almost like, I don't know if you've ever had this sensation where you kind of have like a vague sense of like where you stand on something that like, you don't know that much about. And then you read something and you're like, yes, this is like putting into words, the stand that I vaguely felt like I had. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I guess I, I saw like a one-two punch in this article. Um, one of them centers on the idea of a performative contradiction. Uh, and the other one centers on the idea that what we're seeing in post-humanism with its sort of radical decentering of the human is a, um, Rather than a critique, what it seems to be offering is a reflection of the cultural contradictions and the contradictions of capitalism. So, in a sense, you know, to make almost like the Deleuzian phrase, almost to like make yourself a body without organs, is almost to make yourself completely pliable to the postmodern situation that we're in, which involves a kind of mutation of the symbolic sphere. Now, what I mean by that is referencing, you get this from Jameson and Zizek, the idea that there's been a, a, uh, a breakdown of symbolic efficiency or a break in the chain of signification. And this is really what for you defines postmodernity is this sort of decline or 
or this this slippage of symbolic efficiency. So, I mean, there's a there's a few ways to come at this. One of the ways is there's no longer a kind of prohibition to our enjoyment that we are now sort of encouraged to enjoy. We're prohibited from not enjoying in a certain way, right? And and posthumanism sort of seems to come to reflect that imperative in its own structure. Um, and maybe you can maybe you can expand on that and what i see you then moving towards obviously in this article is you're offering up a, a kind of aesthetic category the, the again we've spoken about this already the the sublime the technological sublime as a way of reading almost as a way of interpreting aesthetically the productions of social media of cinema and film and those sorts of things so maybe I guess beginning with the performative contradiction, I mean, I think that's that just really has to do with um, the post-humanist literature saying we're going to decenter the human, but we're really still interested in human survival, right? One of the sort of examples of that, you know, you might remember from early days of COVID, is when demand fell quite a bit. There's all these articles that came out about, oh, nature is coming back. Nature is sort of restoring itself. And we go, aha, there we go. We just got to take humans out of the picture and nature will do fine kind of thing. But really, that's all for us. We want, we are the ones who want to survive. And so to build, then to go ahead and build this sort of post-humanist philosophy that reflects the contradictions of capitalism rather than critiquing them in a certain way, we're just in a sense, we're just digging ourselves into a deeper theoretical ditch, I guess you could say, rather than actually addressing the contradictions inherent in, say, postmodern capitalism. Is that maybe you can respond to something in there? Yeah, sure. Okay, so there's a, a lot to unpack there. What you're you're kind of pointing to. Let me begin with this idea of the performative contradiction, and you can see it in some of the language of or the rhetoric of Anthropocene, the Anthropocene narrative or the discourse, where on the one hand, the very idea of an Anthropocene suggests that human beings or human culture, and it's not, you know, the, the difference is not necessarily articulated. Um, and even the dating of the Anthropocene is um, up for debate. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, for instance, in Homo Deus, says that we should start counting the Anthropocene some 70,000 years ago. Some um, writers say um, 8,000 years ago with the beginning of farming the Neolithic revolution. Um, Paul Crutzen, who is the, uh, the chemist who has popularized the term, dates it to the Industrial Revolution. Some people date it to um, European colonialism and imperialism. Others date it to the post-World War II uh, situation beginning with the, the 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 dropping of the atomic bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the you know the post-war consumer culture the great acceleration it's called so there's various different ways to date um, the the Anthropocene but one thing that sticks out even in the very idea of Anthropocene is that there is something exceptional about human beings or human culture that has caused this um, conundrum that we're all in. At the same time, a lot of the Anthropocene and post-human discourse wants to say, wants to resist anthropocentrism. It wants to resist this idea of there's anything that is exceptional about human beings. 
So on the one hand, the claim is humans are the exceptional cause, but on the other hand, humans are not exceptional at all and are in some kind of monistic oneness relationship with nature. And I've seen arguments even made that when humans are acting upon the world, that's just nature acting upon itself. So if mm -hmm. nature is just acting upon itself, at what point do we find this exceptional human subject or culture or human being that is supposedly responsible for this condition that we're in? So that's the kind of the performative contradiction that I'm trying to highlight there. Um, and even, again, as I've tried to say before with Victor's question, this idea that we're trying to decenter a human subject, but it's only the centering of a human subject that can act ethically to respond to the conditions in, that we're in. Now, just another part of your question, you're talking about in post-humanism, does in some ways articulate the flaws or the contradictions in human subjectivity, various humanist ideologies, and so forth. And I guess one of the ways I want to, I try to think about this, and this is where you can come back to Hegel and the difference between, you know, a bad or a spurious infinity and Hegel's true infinity. So the bad spurious infinity, this idea of, you know, you begin from a point and then you move on forever, right? That's just a straight line going on forever and ever and ever. Or even the way I describe Graham Harmon's, you know, um, notion of withdrawal, that it's, you know, infinite withdrawal and splicing into, you know, more and more multiples and multiples and multiples forever and ever. Whereas Hegel says we should think the true infinity, not as this moving on in a straight line forever, but in terms of a, a cycle of a circle, right? So that you can begin, for instance, with the moment of initial positing, as and I put it before, you posit the idea, even if you think about, you know, the positing of the sublime in some way, right? The sublime out there is nature, or the sublime of technology, or as I try to develop this idea of historical sublime as the human as such, as the enemy. But it's the initial positing that then allows us to move from a, a positing reflection to an external reflection. So we see ourselves outside of ourselves. And that's where I think post-humanism is kind of stuck in this initial moment of negation from the initial positing, that it's stuck in this moment of external reflection and is kind of caught there in limbo without really being able to move back in the circle form to come back to the place of the beginning to think, what should we do next? Which in Hegel's terms is the negation of the negation, which you know is kind of interesting because I think that there's an important difference between the way that Hegel articulates the negation of the negation and the way that Marx articulates the negation of the negation, not just in his early work, but in his later work, in the sense that the negation of the negation is the next historical movement in a linear progression of history. Whereas I think in Hegel, and this is where it's similar to psychoanalysis, it's not about historical movement of progression, but it's the progression of the subject to externalize itself, to look, you know, from the outside looking in, to then end the moment of determinant reflection, to come back to the place of beginning and say, well, no, I actually have the freedom to change the presuppositions that I posited to rethink the problem in another new and different uh, way. So I think that um, that's kind of where I want to go with the, with this idea of a, of a rethinking of humanism to come back at the end of the circle to rethink the initial presuppositions. For me, that you know, change the initial presupposition that distinguishes what I'm doing from the Marxist humanists is not to think of alienation as contingent, 
but to think of it as constitutive of subjectivity. Where I'm differing from the anti, the post-structuralist anti-humanists is not to think about an ethics of decentering, but to think about how we're always already constitutively decentered, and that the point is to try to, even in the process of analysis, to center the self to be able to perform an ethical act. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to say, though, just quickly, um, this idea of a center is that I think that it's actually very, and this is where, you know, the problem of postmodernism and enjoyment, do we get rid of all the authorities and prohibitions? I guess a good way to distinguish between modernism and postmodernism, you could say that if modernism was, you know, this condition where we are prohibited from enjoying, you know, Foucault has this whole thing about, you know, where there's power, there's resistance. Wherever you say no, there's a resistance. So modernism is, you know, the law of the father that tells you no type of thing. Whereas in postmodernism, it's not that we're prohibited from enjoying, but we're constantly obligated to enjoy. Now, the difficulty with making enjoyment an obligation, removing power, authority, and centers, is that you have no enjoyment. You have no ability to resist anything. There's no nothing you can transgress. The only way that you can have experimentation and play is if you're experimenting against some norm, some center, right? If you eliminate all of this, then you have nothing to grapple with, nothing to respond to. So I actually think that removing the center, removing um, um, that, you know, sort of limitation prohibition is actually much more debilitating. And that's why I think, you know, today there's so much more anxiety of, you know, you're not only, you're not prohibited, you're obligated to enjoy, but I don't know how I should enjoy. What should I do? How do I, you know, and then, you know, Zizek likes to, you know, give all those examples, you know, you have the Cosmo articles. These are the steps you need to take to get the man or the woman of your dreams, you know, type of things. This is the way you should have healthy living, but none of it ever brings any actual pleasure because our pleasure comes from that moment of being able to resist. And I'm going to, you know, possibly a, 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 a contentious argument here, but I start to think about, you know, CNN type liberals who love having a figure like Trump, right? Because you get the enjoyment from saying, this is the bad guy. This is who I can resist. You know, right-wing nutbars, sorry, um, love having critical race theory because they can enjoy, you know, criticizing, you know, that side of thing. So you always have to have some kind of an enemy. That's why we love, we love critiquing Jordan Peterson and James Lindsay. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, don't get me started on those. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I mean, I'm just saying it's, it yeah. would be, it's undeniable that there's a, quite a bit of a, an enjoyment, an eruption of enjoyment that we get from kind of like engaging with them and laughing at them. Like, I mean, it's, it's, un, it's, it's undeniable. I have to say being at the Peterson Zizek debate was probably one of the greatest experiences uh, I've had the, 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 the amount of, um, um, I don't even <laughs> Like, I think like the orgy porgy of enjoyment that you got from that audience <laughs> was spectacular. Oh, yeah, that was it was great. I want to just if you don't mind, pick up on a couple things that you said there that that were interesting to me, I guess. Well, the first one, when you're sort of talking about, um, you know, the need to have something to resist as like kind of essential to enjoyment and sort of like the confusion that people have because they don't know how to enjoy. Right. And I think that that whole theoretical framework or like that way of framing things is pretty helpful for like understanding things like the culture war. But, uh, you know, I also thought about John Waters, you know, that, that humorist, I think he said something once about how, like, you know, you, you see these shifting tides in sort of like what the dominant norms are. So like he, in this example, he talks about like eating McDonald's, right. And like, it became 
like, you know, kind of an ironic thing that people only eat when they're hungover, right? They're like ashamed to eat it. And then John Waters was like, you know, the truly subversive thing is to eat McDonald's unironically, you know, like for dinner now, right? And it's like, like, just like the way <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Like, because you're like, I'm going to have McDonald's for dinner, you know, it's, it's that's what we're having tonight, like unironically, you know, and it's like, just shows you the way like, we are always like shifting back and forth, trying to adopt some, some attitude towards thing that will as you say like give us an attitude or like a position of resistance or something to it so let me so let me pitch something to you what if we unironically impose limitations right, right. what if we unironically instead of negating limitations what if we unironically have the freedom to say no we are going to create laws where we cannot just you know put chemicals into the ground to suck up little drops of oil Right. What if we put in a law and a limitation that says, no, you cannot, you know, have this much air travel or you cannot, you know, industrially kill animals, uh, you know, in the way that we do today. What if we unironically impose our own yeah. limits and in that way create a much more universally free society? That's exactly what I'm trying to say when I'm defending a renewal of humanism. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, that. I'm not sure how close you consider yourself to like Zizek's philosophy, but, you know, even not just at the level of putting limitations on things like policies, you know, and laws, but I've heard Zizek say, um, you know, that he loves kind of like politeness and morality and like, and, and like, and I wonder if, do you think that's for the same reason that it's like, there's something good about just choosing to place limits, right? That there are terms of behavior and maybe it's okay to have norms, uh, uh, like rather than and maybe that's also why he talks about the postmodern father who, you know, talks to the child and confuses them and says, you know, oh, if you your grandmother really loves you, so you should go see her rather. And it's better, he says, just to say you're going to see your grandmother. Right. Is that connected? I didn't think of it that way, but you're raising a very useful point. And I think that, you know, there's something that we gain even socially you know, by forms of politeness, propriety, uh, you know, Slavo likes to use the, you know, the example of, you know, you offend somebody and then you apologize and they say, oh, you didn't have to apologize, right? But the only, you can only say you didn't have to after the act has already been done. So it yeah. would seem to negate the entire gesture, but there's actually a surplus that's accomplished in the gesture itself. You can only refuse the apology or, or you know, say it wasn't necessary after it's already been given. But what you gain from that, that it, it looks like you didn't have to, but you gain from that is a social bond. You gain, uh, you know, you know, respect and camaraderie. And I think that these are things that are central to any kind of, you know, not just collective organization between people, but even a reflection of our sense of self. Because I think that one of the things, not in the sort of Robert Brandom spirit of trust type of way, but I think mm -hmm. that, one of the, the the problems that we face today, especially in sort of neoliberal, hyper-competitive types of society, is that we can't really, you know, we, we, we end up acting as individuals because there's a breakdown of trust, because we are put into, into situations where we're constantly acting in competition with each other, but we're never, you know, able to build real forms of lasting trust and you know be vulnerable with other people and i think that when we're talking about imposing certain types of limits part of that means you know i choose this person that i'm going to trust that is going to hold me to account for my misdoings and by doing that i'm actually gaining much more freedom i'm actually gaining more freedom in being able to choose who's going to be the limit of my activity 
Yeah, totally. I mean, it even reminds me, uh, you know, maybe surprisingly, but, and it's in my mind because I've been teaching it in my tutorials. I work, you know, I'm, do, I'm, I'm doing a, one of those history of political thought tutorials right now. We're on John Locke and Hobbes. We did a Hobbes before, and it kind of reminds me of like, you know, their argument is often like, yes, you're giving up some kind of freedom by, you know, uh, you know, uh, giving up your freedom to the, to the comp, to the, um, sovereign, to the Leviathan in Hobbes's case. But you're actually like gaining another kind of freedom, um, and I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pro like problems with Hobbes. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like a lot of the stuff he says. But I feel like there's something just to that point um, that this. Kind give you of another like, example. I mean, yeah. some people would say I've debated with people, and I don't want to go into it too much here. But the difference between you know Leviathan and say Freud's civilization is discontents because, and I and I prefer civilization is discontents sure. because you know what Freud is saying is that you know it's. We, when we enter into civilization, we have to give up some of our, you know, basic inclinations, but what we gain is so much more valuable because we have a community of people that are going to help us and to take care of us. And we might feel the discontent, you know, in the, in, in, in the culture from being, you know, limited and prohibited and repressed in that way. But at the same time, we're actually creating a society that is, universally free where we have to create limits but those limits actually grant us much more freedom because i don't have to worry anymore if you know you victor you're going to come and smash my house and take all of my possessions sure. and whatnot right there's the social contract that you know says that i can be protected um in my um in my own house yeah totally uh, and i wonder like I, I, earlier i wanted to like read this quote from your paper actually I mean, it kind of takes us back to the sort of like um, question of performative contradiction, but I guess I see a link. I mean, I think it is linked between sort of like this idea of trying to, well, maybe you can tell me if it's linked, at least this is, this is the, the sense I'm getting, but like, you know, this, this sort of like desire or this weird tendency to like, feel like rhetorically we want to avoid limits all the time, but like th the usefulness of some limits. And I think, and so here you're talking about, I guess this, I don't know. Do you see like this this um, drive to avoid anthropocentrism almost as like a kind of drive to just like avoid limits or something or like to escape from limits? Or maybe I'm making a connection that isn't there. No, I don't think that's a bad way of putting it. Let me actually something I wanted to say in response to Eric before I was thinking about, you know, in the context of COVID and, you know, the you know, the, the COVID-19 vaccine and so on. I think I was thinking about, um, you know, Jane Bennett has some part in her book, Vibrant Matter, where she's arguing for an idea of a, of a, a vital materialism where we recognize the vitality and the agency of not only humanity, but also all non-human matter. And ethically, we should be driven by a policy that says, do no harm to any form of matter. But then think about what we've been dealing with the last two years. You know, do we really say, you know, and I, maybe, you know, again, I'm being facetious somewhat, but maybe not, um, you know, let's not do any harm to the coronavirus. Let's not kill off the virus, right? Um, I think that there's, you know, when we talk about freedom, 
we're not just talking about a free choice of these are the various options and then we choose one as if it's a buffet, but we're talking about the choice to do what is necessary in ultimately contingent decision. I mean, one way to think dialectics is even to try to grasp how necessity arises out of pure contingency. And in some situations to, you know, and, you know, historically and politically, this is going to vary. There's no no one size fits all solution, but given the context, and this is you know maybe even somewhat you know uh, you know a Kantian critique of practical reason, but in you know the the categorical imperative, you know act in a way that your actions are universally acceptable. We do what's necessary, and we place limits and conditions that are necessary to enhance our freedom um, and, and our survival in that way. Does that kind of does that make sense yeah. or? Okay. And I think this is what distinguishes, let's say, a Lacanian, um, you know, political ethic from, say, a Deleuze Guattarian political ethic. I think that you could say from Deleuze Guattari that it's the imposition of limits that actually creates lack and contradiction, whereas for Lacan and for Hegel, lack and contradiction are inherent. So you can think the difference between the two is that for Deleuze Guattari and even their kind of Spinozism, that what's affirmative is the layer beneath and that what's superimposed of on top, the limitations is actually creates the 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 limitations of the lacks or the gaps, the contradictions. So their whole ethic is it should try to negate those limits. Whereas for Lacan, the the lack and the contradiction is always inherent in Zizek's ontology. Uh, reality is incomplete; that the contradiction is a sign of reality's incompleteness, and that the lack is always there. So that the most freedom we have is actually imposing the limits upon which we can grasp contradiction and then act freely. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, the, I'm glad you brought up Deleuze and Guattari. Oh. It's kind of an ongoing thing on this podcast where I no, haven't... No, 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 no. You want a limit? I'm imposing a limit. I'm not allowed? I'm not allowed to... <laughs> okay, well, I just let me make a quick comment. <laughs> the, 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 reason, not... the reason for this limit in this case is an ethical one, and it's because the law of the father is coming down because I already know what you're going to ask because it's the thing that you ask because you've been poisoned by, by Hart and Negri, but... The law of the father in this case is going to be that you have to read the thing that you want to bash on before you bash on. It's an ongoing art. It's an ongoing debate. I haven't read Deleuze and Guattari yet. No, I, haven't I, read Deleuze and... I, I, I haven't read Deleuze and Guattari yet, but like everything that I hear about them like makes me not want to like them. And just like what you just said there makes me like just if basically is um, giving me more reason, although it's not fair. Like I, I, I like my own kind of intellectual virtues prevent me. I'll just I'll just to have and I'll say that. that. Without I advocate reading. reading, reading everything and anything, read everything yeah, course, and anything. Course, so never let anything deter you. You'll yeah. learn I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm happy to hear you say what I'm happy to hear you say what you said, because it's just like justifying more my initial. And I know that pills and Eric are both much more sympathetic to Deleuze. So, so anyway, and I know they don't have time to mount a defense right now. So, okay. Sorry guys. I just, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, I think, I think for the, um, for the final sort of section here, then, um, we got to the point about talking about um, the way in which posthumanism is taking place in this concept, or in this context of the uh, breakdown of the signifying chain, uh, the uh, the decay of the of symbolic efficiency. There's no longer this prohibition to our enjoyment. It's actually a kind of uh, it's actually a kind of imperative to enjoy. So where do we find the prohibitions now? And I think one of the f Maybe the best way to summarize all of this is to turn to this idea you bring up of the hysterical sublime, 
which, as you say, the hysteric is one who refuses the identification of the, I, I think, in, in Lacanian terms of the, the identification with the phallic signifier, the one who says to the big other, you know, not that this is what I am, but like, why is why is this what you want me to be? This is sort of what the hysteric says. Um, and then now jumping over to this um, concept of the hysterical sublime, which to me has very practical applications because you can use it as a way of reading social media, as a way of reading film. Maybe you could just walk us through um, a, how we can think about um, the hysterical sublime in in our everyday engagement with media, perhaps. Maybe that's a good way to take it because um, I think in, in this essay we're discussing um, uh, renewing humanism against the Anthropocene, the uh, last couple sections are taken with this idea of um, of the hysteric and the sublime. Uh, we already mentioned the sublime comes from Kant and Burke and, um, and uh, Jameson sort of brings up this idea of the hysteric sublime. We already went over that, but how? what's a practical sort of use, I guess you could say, of this of this theoretical aesthetic category? So and there's, a, there's a number of things that you said there that I, I think are worth unpacking. So I'm gonna go with the last thing you said, and I'll see if I get to the, the first part about the breakdown of the signifying chain or the, 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 the demise of symbolic efficiency. So uh, I, I, I wrote, written a paper and it'll be part of the, the book um, um, eventually. But again, one way, so you can't understand the hysterical sublime, the sublime part I want to say first. Um, you can't understand it without first thinking about what it's what what Jameson was trying to do. And I've, I already said this in Burke and Kant, how we're talking about the positing of an irrational external nature against uh, humanity. For Burke, the idea is that you can enjoy the irrationality of nature from a safe space. For Kant, the idea of the sublime is that we posit in some way our superiority over nature to put ourselves into the picture. And it's through this aesthetic in the sense of experiencing the world through our senses, right? Not necessarily representation, right? But that the representation only comes after we posit our position, our human position relative to nature, that we can then think. And for me, what the sublime does is it's, again, it's a way of positing the presuppositions that against which then we can represent in our thinking, in our discourse, in language, as a way of then reasoning the situation. So that the elimination of the sublime is almost a way of saying that we want to get rid of the representation and that there's a level of unthinking that is going to take place. It's a way of removing thinking. Now, this is important to me because if you see in post-humanist thinkers like Graham Harmon, who argues in his own aesthetic theory, he wants to get rid of this distinction between the beautiful and the sublime that we see in, in Kant, uh, for instance, that he says that we should, you know, view, you know, a sunset and uh, we shouldn't view a sunset and a tsunami uh, any different than we'd experience you know, a beautiful painting of flowers, that everything, again, in object-oriented ontology, the idea is that all things are objects, real objects, and they're all, you know, equivalent, you know, not necessarily the same, the same type of stuff. So he wants to get rid of this distinction between the beautiful um, 
and the sublime. My argument is that even still in post-humanism, there is some positing of a sublime, which for me is this idea of the human. It's the hu against the human that the representation and the reasoning is taking place. But in the, this aesthetic sense, one of the things I'm also doing, Susan Buck Morse, has this really, really great um, article that I hope everybody still reads in grad school on Valtra Benjamin's artwork essay on uh, what she calls anesthetics. And she's responding to the final lines of um, Valtra Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, um, where he says something along the lines of um, fascism aestheticizes politics and the goal of communism is to politicize aesthetics. And part of what I think is taking place with post-humanism in its various different forms through the, the avowed kind of elimination of the sublime, but then the disavowed positing of the human subject as their own sublime is to me a kind of an aestheticization of politics in the way that we're meant to reintegrate our bodies into the uh, uh, the, the, the sensuousness of the natural world to get rid of representation to, in some ways, and again, I'm being reductive here, um, so don't hold me to this, but to get rid of forms of critical, rational, dialectical thinking, dialectical thinking in particular, and to just become one with nature. And I think this is a very dangerous thing, especially in the way that's even substantializing some nature, right, some other, right, even, you know, the way that we substantialize, uh, you know, God in a certain way, right? There's the substantialization of the other that I think is very dangerous, right? And for me, what the aesthetic and representational aesthetics should be about is a way to posit um, um, the, posit the presuppositions that allow us to think critically, rationally, dialectically. That's only from this that we're able to think ethically. So for me, aesthetics and ethics are very much in combination with each other because it's only through the representational aesthetics that we're able to think and to reason and to come to terms with the ethical situation that we're presented with. So the practical dimension of hysterical sublime here is on the one hand to think about what is being posited in the post-humanist argument um, as sublime. I'm arguing that the human subject is posited as the sublime other of post-humanist um, um, theory, but also in the, the psychoanalytic sense, the hysteric is important here, right? Because as you said, Eric, um, this idea of the hysteric is the one who says, you know, to the other, you know, why am I what you are saying that I am? Why am I, though, know, this person, man, woman, whatever, why am I this? Why am I this thing? And a way to think about hysteria is as a form of failed interpolation, right? The subject emerges. The subject as such for Lacan is the hysterical subject, right? In this moment of interpolation failing, the ideology failing, saying, why am I what you are saying that I am? And it's in fact in the hysterics questioning that the analytical discourse is produced. That psychoanalysis is really the product of trying to understand the hysterical question. The hysteric is kind of like the proletariat of Freud's psychoanalysis, because it's the, the, the hysteric who is questioning the authority of the other, and the analyst who has to come in and interpret and help the hysteric, the subject themselves, to create a narrative construction that then allows them to engage again with the world. In Lacan's ethics, the ethics of, you know, the only thing that one can be guilty of is giving grounds relative to one's desire. And if desire is this constant process of 
negation, negation, negation. I get this object, that's not it. I get this object, that's not it. I get this object, that's not it. Negation, negation, negation. At a certain point, you realize that you cannot negate any further and you have to, on your own, create the conditions that allow you to enjoy. Coming to terms with the fact that your enjoyment is only in the fantasy and not what lies beyond the fantasy, right? That you enjoy by imposing your own limit, you enjoy in the fantasy, but you still have the freedom to create the conditions of your own enjoyment. And in a sense, in that way, we sort of continue to rehearse this um, fantasy, which brings us back to the constitutive lack that is what gives birth to the subject in the first place. And the goal here then is to sort of traverse the fantasy um, and I guess in Lacanian terms, be, become, take the position of the analyst in a, in a way. Uh, you traverse the fantasy in that sense. And in, in doing that, right, what we're doing, I mean, one of the things I like, the examples I like to use is that stupid old, you know, hippie thing of I'm going to go out and find myself, right? I, mm. I, I get in this idea and you know, my, I don't like this. I'm going to be something else. I want to find something else. But the whole process is to come back to your position from the beginning and finding yourself of what you always already were, right? Mm. That you made the choice of the limit that you imposed upon yourself. And you, in the end, find yourself by coming back to realizing I'm the one who chose the limit that uh, that is what I am. And the analyst position is this, you know, when you traverse the fantasy, you don't get rid of the fantasy, you don't get the thing that was lost in the fantasy, but you realize that you have the ability to impose the limit and to still enjoy in the fantasy, right? That, you know, you're not trying to get what's beyond. And this is that, again, you don't, you know, it's not this moment of I'm at the end of analysis and I can just go on and, you know, be a, a, a you know, a self, you know, independent person. The point of the analytical relationship is that you always have to maintain that relation with the little other, with the small other of some other person that you are engaged with, that you would trust. And this is why in some ways you could talk about the analytical relationship as uh, not to be too hippy dippy about it, but as a relationship of love, right? Not romantic or sexual or whatever kind of love, but love as a, you know, a choice of this person that is going to hold me to account, you know? And it, and it persists. Right. And when we use the technological sublime, or I'm sorry, the hysterical sublime, is am I okay to put it this way, that we use, say, film or, I mean, your book, Algorithmic Desire, we can also use sort of social media as, as you say, as a sort of metaphor for the form of ideology uh, that structures the big other today. Um, do these things help us traverse the fantasy then when we apply this category of the technological, or sorry, I keep saying that, hysterical sublime? I don't think that there's anything that can help us to traverse the fantasy other than the analytical interpretive work. That I don't think that you watch a film and it's going to be this aha moment, okay, that's what I have to do. I think that it's actually, if you want to do it this way, it's in the practice. In, in my first book, which was on Zizek and film, I conclude by actually arguing that no film is ever going to you know, give us the answer of what we have to do. It's rather in our own action of interpreting, of interpretation. When we're engaged at the level of interpretation, that's when we start to develop this kind of you know, self-consciousness, self-awareness in the process of doing the interpretive work that then leads us towards 
uh, um, and ethics. Now, in terms of its representation in film and popular culture and even in social media, hysterical sublime for me, again, in the way that Jameson talks about it, is the depiction of technology that figures, that represents the sublime of the other of postmodern capitalism. Technology that is this representation of the, the sublime, the postmodern, uh, the other of the post of postmodern uh, capitalism. And what makes it so, you know, the, the panic mode of that is when we start to realize that the development of technology is an outgrowth, not necessarily of human society, but of a particular, you know, capitalist society. For Jameson, hysterical sublime, the, the technological aspect of it is a representation of the networks of global capitalism. So the technology comes to figure or represent or acts as a metaphor of the problems and contradictions, the fissures of, uh, of the networks uh, of global capitalism. And this is what I'm hoping that it can accomplish, you know, at the interpretive analytical level, is to think about how our historical condition is not one of a substantial, you know, human problematic, but it's a, it's a problem of the way in which our world now is organized according to the logics of the capitalist mode of production. And in other ways, I try to say that even if it's not all of humanity that has caused this problem, all of humanity is still impacted by it. All of humanity is still implicated in it. And in just in the way that you know, Marx talks about the proletariat as the symptom of the capitalist mode of production of the capitalist economy, I think that today we can in a similar way say that humanity is the symptom of the capitalist ecology, that all of humanity is the dejected symptom of being run not by humanity, but by a system, by an object, by a series of a network of objects. So that the way to envision class struggle today is the class struggle between capitalism and those who defend it and the rest of us humanity. All right. I have, I was going to wrap it up, but now I have a follow-up question based on that. <laughs> I have to, I have okay, to go pretty all, soon. Okay. This Cause is, I have, uh, I have, I want to say that, you know, I'm implicated in this too, because it's, I'm not against, I, I, you know, as a person with type one diabetes, I am conditioned by the nature of my own biology. I rely on technology to keep me alive. Insulin. I actually, I live with like a, a constant glucose monitor and I use my phone technology to check myself, but it's neither the nature nor technology that is driving us, I want to say, but it's that the, the human decision, you know, of how to plan and to act, that this is something that is very much part of the way to rethink humanism, the planning aspect of it. So I'm only saying that because I have to go have a snack soon because of my blood sugar. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you do you want to go now or That's one more question? Uh, okay. Okay. Great. So thanks. So we'll wrap, we'll wrap shortly. So Within this capitalist uh, mode of production that you kind of finished off with there, and and couple that with the hysterical situation, how do you non-arbitrarily reset that limit that you're talking about? Because the non, whatever that non-arbitrariness is, and I think it's going to be something related to the humanism that you're talking about here, but the non-arbitrariness of that limit is going to be somewhere where the beginning of this ethics is found. So can you just explain how do you mean the, the arbitrariness as opposed to the non-arbitrariness? Well, jouissance loves the limit. It requires it even. So when you describe the situation of consumption in which there is no limit, where the compulsion is to unlimit or delimit or freely consume, the command is to enjoy arbitrarily. So if that's the state for the consumer, 
and not just eating McDonald's, but, you know, perpetually reacting to tweets or content, if that's the state we have, then every limit you set up on enjoyment is, at least in my view, merely an aesthetic choice. It's arbitrary. So going vegan is a personal brand decision as opposed to an ethical one, if, if consumption is the only law. So are the limits you are proposing to reproduce here, are they purely arbitrary or is there some hierarchy of meaningfulness or ethicalness in the limits that you decide to set? Okay, that's a good question. I get it now. So one way, okay, I'm gonna, I, I'm sorry, I know I'm long-winded, but I think that a good point of contrast would be the Sartre of being a nothingness. Because I think that what I'm absolutely not talking about and what I'm against very much is a kind of a purely liberal voluntarist um, conception of choice and imposing limits. In being a nothingness, Sartre very famously criticizes the Freudian notion of the unconscious, that there's no such thing as the unconscious. There is only the conscious self-aware sense of uh, the self and that we can voluntarily, in some ways, I'm being reductive again, sorry, um, voluntarily make free choices, free decisions um, in a very much independent uh, way. And I don't think that that's the case. And I think that that's where liberalism starts to Um, become a problem because it's not for me a matter of the arbitrary choice of the individual acting on their own, but of the socially determined individual who is acting not just on their own, but in relation to the society, the culture, the community, the family that we're always already uh, uh, embedded within. And even as I described that, the, the formation of subjectivity, the formation of the unconscious comes in that that foundational moment of decision of I, I know I am this. I'm going to negate all of those various other things that my self-aware sense I can't. I know that I'm trying to pursue all of these objects of desire, but what remains unconscious is that initial moment of choice where I say to myself, "I am this." It seems like that's the one where we would be conscious, but actually that's the part that is unconscious. When Lacan talks about the subject of the signifier, the signifier is the unconscious aspect of the self. And we seem to consciously want to pursue all of these various other objects of desire that lie out there, right? So that the point of coming to realize the way in which I set my limit doesn't come from a, you know, this, you know, arbitrarily, arbitrarily, you know, active decision. I choose I'm going to be this, I choose I'm going to be that. It's only by entering into the analytical relationship with the small other, whether that's analysis, you know, you know, you know, my partner, my friends, my family, my community. It's only by entering into the relationship and the dialogue with the with with, you know, in, in this way that we can then come to say we're going to choose the limit. Now, the limit here is not just, you know, individual and subjective, because it also has to be universal. And this is a a very important Hegelian point, right? That freedom is not just the freedom of the individual to act independently, you know, the way that, you know, the libertarian notion of freedom without limits or the, you know, the you know, the trucker convoy notion of freedom of I don't want to live by the law of getting vaccinated and wearing masks. Um, Because if you think about freedom only in that independent, individualistic, arbitrary way, then sooner or later, your freedom comes into competition with the freedom of everybody else. And we're back into that Hobbesian, Lockean, state of nature type of relationship. But freedom is freedom 
only exists if it is a universal limitation, a universal law, where we say, you know, I'm going to obey the law, not because, you know, the powers out there tell me that I have to obey it, but I know that by obeying the law, I'm going to gain my freedom in the gaining of the freedom of the other. A very stupid example that, you know, um, I can't remember where I heard it, but, you know, when you go to a stoplight, or Terry Eagleton has this idea, you know, that, you know, you can't just arbitrarily decide to, you know, stand in front of a speeding um, 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 ambulance, right? When we go to a stop sign, uh, when we're driving, we just, you know, nobody's there, you know, forcing us to do it, but we know that we shouldn't run the stop sign because we'll, you know, endanger ourselves and everybody else, right? So that the limit we're talking about is not arbitrary. We understand that it is a guarantee of our universal, universal mutual freedom. Well, I wish we could extend that last point indefinitely, but uh, I think it's about time. Maybe I'll write a paper contending it. Who am I kidding? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a podcast. This is a it's a it's a lot to absorb. Um, anyway, check out the article in the link below if your curiosity has been piqued, or if you want to go over it again at your own pace. So, Matt. Um, Let's say someone has heard something interesting that you've said here and they want to make more sense of it or go over it at their own pace. Where should they go and what should they do so as to uh, be able to chew and digest? What would you recommend? So, yeah, you can read my my, my latest book is, uh, as you mentioned, Algorithmic Desire Toward New Structuralist Theory of Social Media. The the the, the first for me, I mean, my, I've written about the hysterical sublime. I have a chapter in a book called Black, uh, Black Mirror and Critical Media Theory, um, where I talk about the hysterical sublime um, in relation to the series Black Mirror. Oh, that sounds I have, great. I have uh, another chapter in a book on Lacan and the environment, where I also talk about the hysterical sublime. Um, the paper that you mentioned, I have another piece hopefully coming out soon um, on the aesthetic dimension of the hysterical sublime, but the book is still in process. Um, for uh, uh, you can check out my website. It's matthewplusfetter.com. Um, and I guess follow me on Twitter. Yeah, you're, you're, you're pretty active on there. So I try not to be, which is the bad part. <laughs> but you are. <laughs> oh. I'm not very good at self-limiting, I guess. You need to set yeah. your limits. Yeah. I, I, I checked it about 1030 this morning and you'd already uh, done about eight tweets today. <laughs> <laughs> wow the call out eric the call out well why don't we just say enjoy your limit um yeah. check out his stuff and thank you matt so much for coming on uh it's been great it's been yeah. a, a lot you're probably gonna have to listen to this episode more than once to be able to digest all that but thank you very much for coming yeah it was, yeah, it was a pleasure great. I, I, it's been I, fun I really thank you yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. It was great. All right. This has been uh, PillPod 70-something. I think I said 74. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Check us out right. Fridays. Every Friday, actually. Barely makes Except fun. if you're not a patron. Uh, well, that's true. But that's that's on you. <laughs> that yeah, limit right. is wholly arbitrary. So join us there if you want some more. Anyway, bye. Take care, guys. Bye.